You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice and tips for making in the UK. So let's crack on with the show. Welcome to episode 102 of the Make It British podcast. On today's show, I'm interviewing David Collinge, who runs the Burnley-based weaving business, John Spencer Textiles, who also happens to be one of the exhibitors at our upcoming Make It British Live trade show, which is happening on the 17th and 18th of March. Now, David is the sixth generation owner of the mill, which was originally founded by his great, great, great grandfather 150 years ago. I love David's story because it is one of survival. His company's mill is one of survival. It epitomises why some UK manufacturers have remained and flourished while many others have fallen by the wayside. John Spencer Textiles was once one of 190 weaving mills in Burnley, Lancashire, which between them had over 100,000 looms at their peak. And John Spencer Textiles owned 2,442 of those, so quite a sizeable chunk. They originally wove cotton base cloths, which you'd use for printing fabrics for women's wear, which is what a lot of the fabric in Burnley was woven for at the time. But it was the fact that when such cotton base cloths or Burnley printers, as they used to call them, started to be imported from much cheaper countries such as India, John Spencer Textiles looked at other ways to use their looms so that they were less reliant on fashion and price. They're now weaving a huge variety of different fibres and fabrics, which go into a diverse range of products from blankets, curtains baby slings, artist canvases, even parachutes and bits for nuclear submarines. So I will let David tell you all the different product types that he makes. It's certainly been their ability to adapt and move the business with the times that has not only stood John Spencer Textiles in great stead, but also many other UK manufacturers that I know too. They've also got this way of adapting and surviving. Another interesting fact about John Spencer, which David goes into, is the fact that they are one of, if not the only business that Marks and Spencers ever bought a stake in. So that whereas many other UK textile firms suffered irreconcilable losses when the large high street retailer and my former employer moved its production offshore, but John Spencer was able to weather this storm and buy back their shares from M&S albeit the fact that they had to scale down their business at the time. And what's really ironic is that John Spencer are now producing cloth for Marks and Spencers again, although I doubt they'd ever share, sell them a share of their company going forward. But I do think that if UK high street retailers are to survive, they have to think of ways that they can partner more closely with UK manufacturers again. But that's a topic for a whole nother episode. So in the meantime, here's the interview with David Collinge at John Spencer Textiles. Enjoy. 
So, David, thank you very much for having me at the John Spencer Mill today. Do you want to tell everyone a little bit about the background of your company? Because you are the great, great, great grandson of the founder. That's right. My um, three times great grandfather, John Spencer, started weaving in Burnley. We're not sure exactly what date, but around about 1870 and um, started, uh, started weaving in the, what became known as the Weaver's Triangle. Um, worked his way through various, uh, various mills, uh, including the mill that we're in now, and um, built up a, a sizable uh, chunk of Burnley's weaving industry. So at, uh, at one time in the, uh, in the 1920s, managed to uh, accumulate up to, I think it was 2,442 looms, which was a, a big number of looms. So that was um, out of the 100,000 looms that there were in Burnley. So that was a one of the 190 weaving mills that, uh, that was here. And you are the only cotton weaver remaining in this town, is that right? We're the only traditional cotton weaver left. We still have a, a velvet weaver who's uh, operating on the, uh, on the edge of the town. But uh, in terms of the traditional cotton fabrics, we're the, we're the last man standing. So, uh, so sad, sad to, be, uh, to be there, but... Um, but a proud achievement. Yeah, exactly. But you're doing great things here, though, aren't you? It's, it's quite a modern mill. It's very different to what it would have been like in your granddad's day. Do you want to tell everyone about the different types of fabrics that you make here? Because it's, it's really broad. Oh, gosh. I mean, it's, uh, it's changed so much over the years. So our traditional fabrics were, were all cotton and um, largely print-based fabrics, which is what Burnley was known for. for but they were called Burnley printers, which were traditional cotton fabrics for, uh, for printing, mostly for, uh, for ladies' wear. Mm. Nowadays, that's changed and we're making a lot of uh, fancy industrial fabrics for, for all sorts of uh, different applications from filtration, coating, uh, parachutes, uh, the, the the list is is just enormous and seems to seems to grow every year. So, what percentage of the business is a technical type of textile, and what is what goes into more um, retail and the sort of products that people would buy in the shops? Well, we have our we have our own retail facing brand, which is uh, which is our Ian Mankin brand, that represents about fifteen percent of our production. So that's a fairly small amount. About another 15% is furnishing fabrics for, for other brands, uh, mostly for, um, for printing onto. And um, the other, what does that make? 15 and 15, <laughs> that, that, that makes 70%. The other 70% is, um, 50% is, is industrial fabrics. And the other 20% are, are oddball things like uh, throws and baby slings and bits of luggage and artists' canvas. <laughs> I, I, the mind blows sometimes when I look at how many different things we've done over the uh, over the years. So if it's woven from cotton, you can weave it. Yes, but uh, you know, uh, cotton now is probably only represents about um, about half our production. Mm. So we've branched out now and weave all fibres. So we're weaving mm. cotton, polyester, silk, acrylic, viscose, nylon. Even fibres that you you wouldn't necessarily even thought could be fibres. So we weave, for example, we weave uh, Teflon as a as a fibre. So the thing you get on your nonstick pan, yeah. we weave into low friction bearings that uh, make bearings for uh, fins for nuclear submarines and marine vessels and bridges and JCBs and car steering columns. It's <laughs> it's it's crazy. 
So it's a family business and you're the sixth generation. Did you come straight into the business after you left school? I, I said, as when I left school, I said, I'm not coming in the business, <laughs> as probably every 18-year-old is, is wanting to challenge the, uh, the, the, the family dynasty. I, um, I trained as a press photographer and uh, went to work in the, uh, in the newspaper trade. So um, did uh, four years of uh, that and came back home one weekend and uh, dad said, I think I'm going to sell the business and uh, had a buyer for the business and um, who were potentially one of the large uh, London retail stores who um, were thinking of trying to secure production, which seemed, seems oh, a bit crazy now. Well, it might be, it might be indiscreet for me to, uh, to <laughs> yeah, mention it, but they specialised in, in very fine, lightweight cottons mm. with little tiny prints. Mm. So um, I said, well, hang on a second, yeah, you don't sell the business, I might want to come in. And uh, he said, well, okay, fine, well, then we'll, um, we'll see what we can do. And my first job then was to, we, we decided we'd, we'd try and do the business for this, um, for this retail store. Mm. And uh, we set up another mill. And that became my first job. So I had my own, uh, my own little mill to manage. So at what, and in your early twenties? Yeah, twenty twenty two. Yeah. So, um, but the fabric was so fine that although we had forty eight looms weaving around the clock, the production was only about three hundred meters a day. So I used to, I used to rock up to the mill every morning in my Ford Fiesta and uh, and load the uh, load the production into the back of the car and then bring it back to the main mill for inspection. Oh, brilliant. And then at what point did your father retire and say, okay, right, you know what you're doing here, it's all yours? Well, we had a fairly traumatic event in uh, 1991 when the the whole mill burnt down, which was, um, you know, a bit of a shocker. And that happened? We don't really know. uh, What we know is that the fire started on the second story of a four-story, the four-story mill. And in the process, the, uh, the whole mill fell down. And uh, so it wasn't just a, a little fire. The, uh, you know, we lost 25,000 square feet of a 35,000 square foot building. Gosh. And really, you know, the, it, took us, it took us 18 months to, to get back properly on our feet again. And, uh, and I think after that, Dad was exhausted. Yeah. And, uh, but in true British spirit, you got back up again and thought, right, we'll rebuild it or we'll, we'll carry on. Yeah, I mean, crikey, you know, when you've been running for... 120 years or whatever it was at that point, you know, you, you kind of, you can't just sort of let it go. And we were well insured and, mm. um, you know, the insurance money was, uh, was there to help us get us back on our feet. And I have to say the insurance company were absolutely fantastic. And because we had this other mill that we were, um, that we were running, we had some extra capacity to be able to transfer some production. Oh. And so amazingly, um, we spoke to the, uh, the the retailer that we were dealing with, who by then wasn't bothered about working, and was happy to transfer their production to India. And um, we stopped weaving for them overnight, shifted the production from from one mill to the other, and within three weeks we were back to eighty percent uh, capacity. Brilliant! And that's when you moved into this building here. When did you move into the building we are we're in now? Well, the building that we're in now, we've been in um, since nineteen seventy one. But um, this has been rebuilt on the uh, on the site of the on the site of the old mill. Cool. So you mentioned there about the Ian Mankin brand. I remember Ian Mankin from when I was studying textiles in the uh, in the nineties. <laughs> so it's a, it's a long established brand. How did that come about that you were 
um, manufacturing the Ian Mankin fabrics? Ian Mankin was a, a retailer in London mm. with um, a couple of shops. Yeah, um, I remember going to their shops. Primarily in uh, Regent's Park Road in mm. uh, Primrose Hill and another shop in, um, in Fulham. And um, Ian used to buy fabrics for, used to repurpose fabrics. So he'd, he'd spot fabrics that were being used for another reason and then, and then find another use for them. So, for example, he'd buy dairy filter cloth and, uh, and then say, oh, I'll tell you what, let's put this over four poster beds as a, as a, uh, as a nice veiling. Yeah. And um, he came here one day and we were weaving uh, rifle cloth for, for, the, for the MOD, which is a, a brushed cotton flannelette with a red stripe in it to, to tell, the, um, tell the squaddies where to cut. Yeah, it's got a kind yeah. of cut here line. And uh, he came round and saw, oh, well, that's an interesting stripe because he was a... The, the man for stripes yeah, it was, yeah. and um, thought, oh, I could use that and uh, started to buy that. And so he became my first customer. And wow. over the years, our relationship um, grew closer. He was a, a formidable person. He's, he's, he's still alive, but retired. Oh, is he? He's yes, he's, absolutely. You know, Ian's in his mid eighties now. Yeah. And um, he was a, he was a demanding person to work for and, and fell out gradually with quite a lot of people in the trade. And I was too frightened to say no. <laughs> so, you know, when he asked me to do something, I would, uh, I would just sort of say, yes, Ian, <laughs> and do it. And he appreciated that. And over a period of about um, 15 years, our relationship grew closer and closer to the point that we were, we were weaving 85% of his range anyway. And so when it came to the point of, um, of him wanting to retire, it was a very natural transition for us to take over the brand. Yeah. Does he have any share in the brand anymore? Is he just he has no say anymore, or is he still sort of offering his advice on designs? No, he's uh, he's now he's now backed out gracefully. Oh, bless so, him. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's been an, an inspiration to me because his eye for detail mm. and uh, you know you might think that a stripe is a very simple uh, simple design in a fabric. But it's, uh, it's an amazing thing. It's a little bit like doing, I come from a newspaper background. Mm. It, and, you know, the thing that I was taught with newspaper layout was it's the white space that matters. And it's, it's mm. the same with stripes. It's not necessarily the stripe that matters so much, but how the, uh, how the bits in between work. And you can just see when things don't work. And, yes. you know, that's one of the things that we're known for, uh, you know, stripes that are, people call them well-behaved. So that, those curtains I can see there, is that an Ian Mankin stripe, those curtains behind us? Because it's made up of not just stripes, but all different kind of herringbone patterns within the weave, isn't it? Yes, I mean, the, um, the, the herringbone is a, a bit of a signature of, uh, from the Ian Mankin collection because a lot of the original fabrics and what Ian Mankin's probably best known for is, um, is ticking. And ticking was a, a mattress covering. Mm. And traditionally, mattress tickings were, were herringbones. And uh, we have a very signature herringbone and we're very, um, well, we're almost anal about the way that we do our stripes and herringbones because if you, if you look at this design, you know, you'll see that all the points of the herringbones fall absolutely bang in the middle of the stripes. And uh, yeah, they do. so everything absolutely fits where, you know, you look at, a, at most herringbones and the, the herringbone and the stripe are all off-centred. Um, but it's, a, it's an attention to detail that we're proud of. And where can people buy Ian Mankin fabrics if they want to find them? Well, we sell, um, we sell online. 
at um, theamankin.co.uk. <laughs> and uh, we have our shop in uh, Wandsworth Bridge Road in Fulham in, uh, in London. So that's our, our retail. And then we have a network in the UK of um, nearly uh, 800 stockists who hold our fabrics in pattern books. Um, John Lewis have, the selection, have a selection in most of the stores. And then we have uh, export distribution to over 30 countries. Brilliant. So upstairs, we saw some ladies making blankets. Um, do you want to th tell me about what's going on there? Because that's quite different from what you were doing before, isn't it? You've actually got machinists now making blankets for you. Do you want to give us a little bit of background behind those? Yeah, that was something we were approached by um, a store group to say, could we make some, uh, could we make some blankets? And um, could we make them environmentally friendly? And um, so we came up, uh, we found some uh, supplier for yarn who was recycling uh, T-shirts and offcuts from garment making factories, sorting them into colors and then spinning them back into, um, spinning them back into yarn. So what we're making are customers' own designs of, uh, of throws in, uh, in, a recycled, in a recycled cotton. And because the fabrics are in cotton, we can't do a traditional uh, fringed throw. Mm. So those fringed throws that you see around are generally made from, from wool mm. and the fringes are all entangled during the finishing process. And, but uh, cotton doesn't felt no. like wool. So we were then thought, how do we, how do we finish these off? And um, so we've gone back to a sort of traditional blanket stitching, and, um, which has become quite an unusual thing. It's not, a, it's not something that, yeah. that we could find a commission company anywhere in the country who could do it. So we started off by buying a machine and uh, then buying another machine and putting those machines into uh, other sewing factories outside. And, um, but we were finding that we were wanting our, our demand was when they were at their busiest yeah. and we were out of control of the, uh, of the whole process. Mm. So we took a leap um, about a year ago to, um, to take on one machinist and then we took on another one and now we've, uh, now we, now we've three full-timers. Brilliant. So if anyone wants to get blankets made, what sort of quantities are they looking for? Are they, do you, is there high minimums on those? No, we can do customers' own designs in their, uh, in their own colours with minimums of just 25 throws. So it's, um, it's, really, it's really very small. Mm. And, you know, for, you know, we've got, we're doing big throws that the, our throws will cover a double bed. So, you yeah. know, a big throw that covers a double bed is only 35 quid. So yeah. it's, not a, it's not a massive investment for somebody who wants to get their own designs onto a, onto a new product. And we found, you know, we've been showing at the, um, at the, uh, at the Make It British show, and yeah. that's generally what we show at the Make It British show because it's, it's a it's a product that's easily understood, yeah. And it's the the show's visited by a lot of new designers, who've got designs, but they're not quite sure what to put the designs onto, mm. and so that's um, that's worked. Uh, it's worked really nicely. Mm. Because of course, if you're buying, I mean, I've seen the way the looms are threaded up and how long that takes. So usually, the minimums of making a roll of cloth are much higher, aren't they? If someone wants to have their own, they want to start their new version of the Ian Mankin business and they want to make their own interior fabrics, what sort of minimums are they looking at? We, we have quite small minimums. I mean, we, we will weave down to 50 or 100 metres, oh, okay. but it does get very, very expensive. Mm. The beauty of uh, the way that we make the throws are that uh, we're doing these on a, on a jacquard machine. And the, um, the way that we can do that is that the patterning 
it gets a bit complicated, but the patterning is all done in the, uh, is all done in the weft. And so it allows us to make um, small minimums very efficiently. And so we can, we, we can, in theory, we could change the fabric meter by meter. Oh. But the, um, in practice, we get too many variants in, uh, for example, because we're using a recycled material. The, um, the, the variation in, uh, in brushing, for example, can change from, from color to color. Yeah. So we try and keep the, our minimum order down to the equivalent of a 50 meter roll. Right. So those are new for you, aren't those those jacquard machines? Is that for, for the the fabric you were weaving before? I don't, did, I don't think you had the jacquard. Last time I came here was about five years ago. I don't think you had the jacquard machines then, did you? No, and it's a brand new thing. Yeah. I mean, we. I get a bit excited about new machinery, really. <laughs> so and do it, I. New kids. So it's, uh, new tech. We um, we are Ian Mankin, uh, managing director Simon Blackley. Simon trained as a. As a, as a fine artist and then became a, a textile designer and spent most of his life designing, uh, designing jacquards. And then um, shortly, shortly after Simon joined us uh, for the Mankin business, um, Ronnie, our general manager, joined us um, from a mill called uh, Thornbers in Clitheroe. And he'd spent 30 years doing, uh, making jacquards. And it just kind of seemed a natural yeah. fit that we'd got, a, we'd got a designer and a mill manager who knew all about jacquards. And we were starting to get uh, inquiries for, particularly for baby slings, which was uh, a business that we'd, we'd heard nothing about. And yeah. there was only one other weaver in the UK who were, who were weaving uh, baby slings. And they had an exclusive arrangement with, the, um, with one company. So there were lots of other people thinking, where can I go to get these made? And you know, we've now gone from uh, no customers on baby slings to I think we've now worked with over 40 different uh, People making uh, making making baby slings. Really? Well, it's a it's a it's a business that fits absolutely perfectly for somebody who's been a textile designer who has got an interest in uh, in babies mm. and understands the baby world. Yeah. And wants to buy small quantities. Yeah. And so the majority of the customers that we're dealing with are textile designers who've given up their jobs, had ba had babies, thought, what can I do at home that's relevant to my experience? And um, you know the baby sling business seems to uh, seems to fit the bill. Yeah. So what other sorts of things are you doing like that then? So you've got the your woven blankets and your baby slings. Are there any other kind of bizarre and unusual products? Uh, we've just started doing baby blankets for the traditional cellular blankets, mm, so which are a, a, a complicated lino weave that gives a gives the characteristic holes in the uh, in the fabric. And I think any, you know anybody who's uh, Anybody who's over forty will probably remembers. Yeah, will have had them in their will have had them in their prams and probably handed down from generation to generation. And um, that business has largely gone overseas to uh, to, to China. Um, but I'm pleased to say that you know, we, because of our organic accreditation that we've got here, we've had some very interesting business now coming through from um, indirectly through through John Lewis, mm. who are now stocking. Uh, organic uh, baby blankets um, made in Lancashire. Yeah. So are they finished here as well? So because they, they, they've got a ribbon edge, haven't they? Like a satin or satin edge. Do you do this, the finishing here as well? No, we don't. We're working quite closely with um, with, with a customer who who buys the fabric from us, and then they do the um, they do the, the hemming and stitching. And they mm. they're a, they're a fascinating business who um, who who invented the original fitted sheet. 
And so they, they're still making fitted sheets in, uh, in Kent and, uh, and having it, doing, doing really, really well with it. <laughs> so what do you think the future holds for the textile industry in Lancashire? It was one, once known, known for its cotton. You just said there was how many? 100,000 looms or 100,000 looms? 100,000 in... looms in Burnley. Alone. Yeah. So, so and you're now the only one. What do you think is going to happen going forward in 10 years' time? Where will it be? I think it's the traditional industries uh, that are left are doing fine. Mm. And, you know, business is stable and, um, and generally pretty, pretty good. Mm. I think the, the, the new businesses that set up are not likely to be in the tradi- traditional areas. So the new business that is setting up are making really quite high-tech fabrics. So there are new developments in 3D weaving, um, developments in uh, medical uh, medical products that are being made, and you know there are people who are now who are now weaving artificial blood vessels on oh, on jacquard jacquard machines, and yeah. you know the it, it's exactly the same technology uh, that that we're using to make furnishing fabrics mm. or, or other fabrics but just some really, really clever designers who, mm. are, who are developing, uh, developing these things. And some of these products are super, super high value and, and super critical. So it's, the only important thing is that they're done absolutely right because, you know, clearly a medical product, you, yeah. you, you can't go wrong. And, you know, things like aerospace, you know, the, the Boeing Dreamliner is all a woven product. The Formula One cars are, are woven. The... Uh, turbine blades on uh, wind wind turbines. You know they're they're made largely from from woven fabrics. You know you go to the O2 Arena. It's a it's oh, a woven course, it's yeah. a woven building. Yeah. You know so these are the areas where I think the the potential growth are likely mm. to be, and the, the the capital cost for for setup for for small weaving businesses is 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 pretty scary. Mm. So I think you know the. It's, it's likely to be larger organisations who decide that they want to set up what you, what you might call um, a flexible engineering business, yeah. which is really what textiles is. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So are you not tempted to go more into the technical textiles and sort of give, <laughs> give the sack to all of the, the stuff that goes into retail? Is, it, is there not more money to be made on the technical side rather than supplying retail and designers? I, I think, I mean, there could be more money to be made in technical textiles, but you really need to set yourself up as a, as a business that's absolutely focused on that. Mm. And our business tends to be, we make one product for one customer and it's, mm. a, it's a bespoke niche business. So, you know, if, you, if you're going to make technical textiles and you're going to go into the medical world, then all your certifications and all this kind of thing have to be relevant for, uh, for, for medicines. If you're going to do things that are going into the construction world, then you're going to have different relevancies there. And yeah. if it's military, again, so to try and be all things to all people is, mm. uh, is really quite difficult. I mean, it, that's what we try and do, but we try and do it in, yeah. a, in a smaller way. But certain markets just get shut out because yeah. we, we don't have the right certifications. Mm. So what are the biggest challenges for you at the moment as a UK textile manufacturer? I think um, margins are always difficult. Yeah. But manufacturers always moan about <laughs> always moan about margins. Um, skill shortages, I think, are going to be are going to be a big issue for us. The um, 
particularly um, technicians and technologists. Mm. Most of the mills that um, that you'll visit, you know, you've only got to look through the mill and you'll see that most of the um, technicians and things there are, are over 55. There's a lot of white hair. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's understandable why it happened because obviously, you know, we had a period through the 70s and 80s where, you know, if, if people had vacancies, there was probably a mill down the road who'd, who'd made redundancies. So... Why train for somebody from scratch if you've got uh, if, if you've got somebody there? So there's, there's quite a big gap um, to to fill, and we've been doing quite a lot to uh, to try and to try and work through that. And you know you'll see walking around our place that we've got um, you know a fairly uh, a fairly young workforce, and a lot of the people who are who are here we've uh, we've trained ourselves. Mm. But you know that it's difficult in an area where you've got lots of uh, where you've got quite a few mills because. The danger is, of course, you know, you spend all the time and energy and money training somebody and then uh, and then they move on. So, mm. you know, I think as an industry, we have to become more, more mature and we have to, well, mature as in, as, <laughs> as, in, as in not older, we have to become younger, but we have to, we have to be more sensible and, yeah. we, and we all have to make that investment in training. Mm. Have to all work together more. Do you not think that that's happening now? I do feel like the textile industry seems to be coming back together again. And you, you always say when you come to our event as well, when you come to Make It British Live, that you feel like it, it's the friendly show because everyone is getting together and talking to each other, whereas before it was a bit like, you know, holding your homework behind your hands or not telling anyone, telling anyone else what you were doing or showing them what you were working on. No, I think the industry has settled at a level where pretty much everybody in the industry kind of knows where their, their place is and where, <laughs> and where they fit. And we're all very open now. Mm. So if we have an inquiry that uh, that we think, do you know what, that um, the mill down the road will probably do a better job, then we pass business on and mm. uh, and business um, comes back the other way. Yeah. And there's also more sharing of, uh, of machinery. So some specific machinery, you know, people will find that somebody else has spent an awful lot of money on, uh, on, on kit mm. and it does a fantastic job. So, I mean, you know, we spent half a million pounds about 18 months ago on a a brand new warping machine, yeah. which we don't run fully. But, you know, we found that uh, in doing trials, we found, for example, that it, uh, it's absolutely fantastic at, uh, at running silk, which isn't something that we'd ever, we'd ever done before. And so, you know, we've suddenly found ourselves, you know, um, weaving and making, making warps on, for, uh, on commission for other weavers, ah. uh, you know, that are, that are out of silk. Yeah. So it's something that I would never have thought that uh, would have happened. Yeah. That's really good. That's much more of a kind of sharing and community type of spirit. Back like the old days. <laughs> no, I, I don't think the old days were like that. I think I think the old days, you know, somebody would have um, thrown bricks and bricks and stones at the mill down the road because uh, that, that was everybody was competing for the same suppose, for the yeah. same business. Mm. So, you know, as, when I joined the business, everything that we did was a was a tender. Mm. So a lot of what we were doing was for the MOD or for the police or the health service. And you knew that the merchant you were quoting was getting three or four prices from from your competitor mills, mm. and everybody fought for the last yeah. penny. Yeah, well, it certainly worked like that when I worked for Mars and Spencers, and you know, a lot of stuff went out to tender. For the, and that's why there was this sort of pricing war. Like, everyone ended up going overseas because it was cheaper in China, and it was just about price. And it's, I think, it's less about price now, isn't it? Because your fabrics aren't the cheapest. Um, but they're the best. Well, we like to think so. Yeah. I mean, we um, M&S is an interesting example because um, uh, after the Second World War, M&S 
actually bought a, a third stake in our uh, in the business. Oh, really? I and, didn't know that. And we, as far as I'm still aware, I think we're the only manufacturing business that M&S has ever had a stake in because they came to my great-grandfather and said, we want to buy 100,000 metres a week of cotton poplin from you. And he said, well, hang on a second, that's, that's a third of our production. That's a big yeah. commitment, you know, if you... Put your money where your mouth is. If you want, if you want that production, buy a third of the business. He was very wise, wasn't he? He was, and that ran through until 1971, when um, by that time every other chain store had uh, had, had run for the hills and uh, <laughs> or run for the far east. Yeah. And um, M&S then, as, along with the rest of the family, were asked, "Please, will you put some more money up for investment because we need to re-equip." And the uh, the family, the non-working family shareholders didn't want to stump up. M&S didn't want to stump up. And that was when our business then was uh, was reorganised radically from oh. then from about 650 looms down mm. to uh, 100 looms overnight. Oh. But, in order to be able to pay M&S back their share? Well, they um, the business was profitable and had money in the bank. So right. it was just a question that they... they and the family decided to... Most of the family decided to cash in and, yeah. uh, and, uh, and take it out. But the great thing is, is that, you know, I've just ordered now online four shirts from M&S. Yeah. Which we've woven the fabric for, with yarn made by English Fine Cottons, with yarn dyed at Blackman Yarn Dyes. So oh. it's a real turnaround that, um, you know, what are we now, nearly 50 years later, mm. that um, we're weaving fabrics again that are going yeah. into that are going into M&S. So, um, and they're not seriously expensive, you know, they're... Okay, they're not the cheapest shirts, but they're they're fifty five quid a shirt. Mm. So, you know, it's not it's not it's not silly. Yeah. And it's a and it's and it's a it's a pucker yeah. British product. And that's what MS should be known for, isn't it? Quality products made in the UK and made to last. I think they um, they lost their way with with something that was a fantastic USP. Mm. And and even now, actually, looking at their website. They just mention uh, as a as a byword against the product. It just says English fine cottons poplin, and you know you want to be thinking, no, you should be banging the table, <laughs> yeah. shout about it. I think they did that. They missed the trick with that best of British range. They did as well. It wasn't promoted in quite the right, right way, and it it was quite fashion. Whereas if you buy something made in the UK, you want something that's timeless, like Patrick Grant is doing with community clothing. It's, it's made to last and it won't go out of fashion, so you're going to invest the extra money. Um, I hope these shirts that they're making are kind of classic shirts. They've not put a silly collar on or anything. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> that, that's getting outside my remit. You're getting into the fashion world there. So, uh, no, they're, um, I, I hope they do well. Mm. It's, um, it, it needs to, and, mm. and, and I hope they shout about it uh, you know, a little more. Mm. Hmm, interesting. Okay, well, thank you very much, David. I won't keep you any longer. You've got a mill to run, though it's quite quiet here today, isn't it? You're saying you do five, how many very long days and then two quieter days? No, our guys work, uh, they work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and they do three 12-hour shifts. Yeah. So we run 24 hours with two shifts over Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But it means that they work for three days and get four days off, so... Uh, I have thought about suggesting that we go back to a five-day working, but I think we'd have a riot. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for uh, having me at the mill today. You're very welcome. Nice to see you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Make It British podcast. 
If you're interested in finding UK fashion, textile and homeware manufacturers, then you should definitely come to our trade show, Make It British Live on the 17th and 18th of March, 2020. There'll be some of the best UK factories there for you to meet, as well as a series of inspiring talks, just like the ones that you listen to on this podcast. It's the perfect place to network with others that want to see UK manufacturing thrive. To register to attend, just go to makeitbritishlive.com forward slash register. Or if you want to find out about exhibiting at the show, visit makeitbritishlive.com forward slash exhibit or drop me an email to kate at makeitbritish.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you. I hope to see you there. Bye bye.